how are you? Hi there, gang. Hello. Hello, gang. Hi, gang. How are you? I love how Don Rickles used to refer to his audience as gang. It's just one of the many revolutionary things the great Don, the insult king of comedy, did. Revolutionized. Using the word gang. Hi, and welcome to Nick Flanagan Weekly. I'm Nick. This is the podcast, I hope. I believe it's eponymous. I think that's what it means. Uh, It's freezing outside. This sucks. I'm over it. Can you please give me a job? Say, wow, I love what you're doing. I'd love for you to work for uh, me at NPR. And then you get pay the rest of my visa fee. Boom. I'm over there. It has to be in Los Angeles. I'm finding myself missing Los Angeles. And the reason I am probably has a lot to do with the fact it is just brutally cold out there. And Toronto just keeps Toronto just keeps on making choices as a city that are not really in my enjoyability index. That being said, that's not what the episode is about. I'm Nick. This is a show where sometimes it's solo, but often I have a guest. Today's guest is none other than Tema Smith. Who is Tema Smith, you may ask? Well, besides being a co-worker of mine at Massey Hall, a vaunted concert space in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Neil Young put out a record called Live at Massey Hall. Maybe you've heard it if you're a young, if you're a Henny Youngman. And it, we worked there, and she was always a beacon of intelligence and uh, good attitude and fun to talk to. And, uh, you know, uh, we were friends after that. And then on Twitter, I've just noticed she's always got something bright to say. She's kind of forced to dialogue sometimes with people who have issues. She is a Jewish person who is also of uh, African-American ancestry. And uh, she has a very specific, um, I don't know, set of experiences because of that and uh, beliefs. So in this conversation, and, and she talks to people on Twitter about it. She writes about it for the foreword, uh, which is a, a newspaper slash website and uh she's just really cool and I've, I've always been impressed by what she's doing so i thought who better to have in in the the, the room and talk to than tema smith if you want to find out more about tema go to temasmith.com t-e-m-a smith s-m-i-t-h dot com You'll have the chance to subscribe to her newsletter and just find out a lot more about her. And this interview will help you find out a lot more about her, uh, her time in Israel and her life experience and all of that good stuff. So without any further ado, here is my talk with Tema Smith on Nick Flanagan Weekly. Uh, Hello. <laughs> hi. Today I'm with... You, Tema Smith. Yeah, that's me. How are you? I'm really good. It's so good to see you. It's been forever. You too. I know it's been so long. Wow, it's crazy. It's really crazy to think like from our just random conversations during shifts at Massey Hall. Yes, that we're now ushering recording in my room. podcast in your room. With the art 
and uh, whiteboards. Yeah. And there's a snake plant and a salt lamp. And, and like a lot of books. A lot of books and a window and video games and yeah. several. Uh, do you notice how many screens are in this? Yeah, there's a lot of screens. I'm actually quite impressed by the number, <laughs> of, the number of screens. I'm slowly turning myself into like one of those sort of like uh, rail thin kind of anemic uh, computer hacker guys who's just got like thousands of screens around him and I, next stop is a gaming chair. I think Ooh. if I have a gaming chair, I'll, I'll get to the next level. That is pretty intense, and <laughs> yeah. I feel like that would definitely create some sort of, I don't even know what atmosphere in here. It would be like mm. next level yeah. achieving of the 21st century virtual reality. Yeah, I think what I'd have to do if I got a gaming chair is I'd have to like paint all the walls black and put like those uh, glow-in-the-dark kind of constellation things on all over it and maybe a disco ball too i was just gonna say you needed for if you're gonna do that you definitely need a disco ball and at yeah. least two lava lamps yeah and a mini fridge yes <laughs> full have of sandwiches seen, have you seen i've just seen these for some reason amazon keeps recommending them to me which mm -hmm. i don't want to know what that says about the algorithm and what i buy mm -hmm. but they're like tiny little fridges that just hold like a couple of cans oh interesting and i'm like maybe i should just buy one of those for my desk yeah maybe it you know have a can like a weird something. life decision when i have a one bedroom cold brew Cold brew. Bulletproof coffee, that's the new thing. Oh, yeah, I have not tried that yet. I don't really understand what it is. I think there's butter in it. Yeah. Like, that just seems... Someone told me this. It seems weird to me. I don't know. I've I heard first of... heard of it because of Joe Rogan. Right. Like, I, not that I listen to Joe Rogan, but I think everybody watches clips sometimes on, on YouTube, and he's always like, drink my bulletproof coffee. I mean, when I think of people who would drink bulletproof coffee, definitely Joe Rogan would be on the top of that list. Yeah, it's some sort of a like a supplement rich. Uh... Yeah, I just I really don't understand this. I like my coffee like either black or with a little bit of milk, right. nothing else. And you know what? That's good enough for me. No cloven hoofed animals. No cloven hoofed hurt, animals. Hurt hurt in the making of this coffee. No, not not. Yeah, it's just not worth it. And also, like, who wants butter in their liquid beverage unless it's a hot buttered rum? Well, there was a situation of some years back where a decadent person I know said, you know, sometimes I like to just slip a little butter in my coffee. And so, so I do understand it, but it just feels like, first of all, it feels like the first step towards the resurgence of butter as something that people call healthy. You know, right. I feel like that's been kind of bubbling under the surface for a little while now. Yeah, I mean, I definitely am on the, like, butter over margarine train um, as a general rule. But, Have you like, ever dipped Belba toast in margarine? No, it's a joy. That sounds like something my grandma would have done. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This has, like, gotten <laughs> to, like, premium Jewish content really quick. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Like, is Melba toast a Jewish thing? Because it was like a Jewish thing at my grandma's house. But I, I don't know. I mean, I've certainly had Melba toast <laughs> in like view of my mother, who's Jewish, yeah. and uh, and then also. But is this a Jewish thing? Like, no matter what I have, say for dessert or something or toast, I can follow up anything with a pickle. You know, like I will yeah. go into the fridge and I will like if I'm going to bed, I'll be like. Get the pickle first. Yeah, that. I mean, that feels like 
like definitely the kind of thing that I have seen bubble into Twitter controversies uh, in in what we call Jewitter, mm. aka Jewish Twitter. Who are the biggest Jewish Twitterers? David from? Um, no, this is like this. So Jewish Twitter is this whole weird subculture. Shmuley? Rabbi Shmuley. Yeah, we avoid him. <laughs> uh, but there's like this whole weird subculture. Um, and it's basically like if high school was Twitter and Jewish. But what kind of high school? Like Bialik? Like a like, like a Hebrew high school? Or? No, I feel like like just any of the high schools with like the factions and the cliques and you right. know who's arguing with who and who's Fetch. who's shit talking Fetch. yes Fetch. Fetch. yes that's exactly yeah. it like and, and it's even got like people shit talking each other in direct messages like which is exactly like when people would shit talk each other in the notes that they would pass right. like, it's 100% is there a version of like mash remember Ooh, mash yeah. Mm, yeah that would be interesting and also um are you part of these, like, group DM threads with people? Oh, yeah. Because I've heard about these. I'm not in anything like right. this. Um, I was in a handful of them. I think they've mm. mostly died down now because, you know, they start up on a topic, and then unless there's something to really sustain them, they kind of, like, die out. Um, but I have been on a number of them before, and I know of the existence of others. It's like a whole thing, but it's I have to say, of, like, out of the first group DM I was in, I'm now, like, real-life friends with half of the people in it. Right. Well, I mean, I'm in some friends, you know, group text chats, but that feels different. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about the ones where it's, like, 11 people, and, you know, you're talking about being obsessed with, you know, uh, how dumb... Jonathan Chait is, let's say, or right. something, you know. Yeah, no, and that's exactly it. And it's like you quote tweet people, like you you post people's tweets in the chat and everyone like mm-hmm. weighs in on it. And there's a lot of sharing of memes. And sometimes there's like multiple conversations happening at the same time because one about five people in the chat were talking about one thing. Whoever jumps back in doesn't care to scroll back up and just right. like throws in another topic half the people start weighing in on that topic and then everyone's just talking about different things yeah it's great yeah no that's fun i chaos. just get a little disoriented it's it's total quite it's total chaos and i'm totally here for it i am also here for it too mm-hmm. we're both here for it mm-hmm. uh and we did as you mentioned we met on massey at massey hall yeah. working at the venerable establishment massey hall the late great well it's gonna come back i know but like Without the peeling paint and the stained <laughs> carpets, is it really, is it really... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really dirty. It was so dirty. Very dilapidated, but then also not... Very good place to see a show. Phenomenal place to see a yeah. show. Yeah. Like, most of the greatest shows I have seen in my life were... I mean, I was working and getting paid to see them, but at Massey Hall. So what were those shows? Was oh, it... that's a hard question Do to, you... like narrow down well do you remember when there was like a tyler perry style almost like west indian kind of um play that was staged yes. for one night and it was that was wild i was into that um yeah I it was, felt like i was i'd been to something like that once before at like a north york community center like not community center but like com- like a theater space in in north york or something right, right. yeah um yeah i totally forgot about that and there was but i think like if we're going to like the most, <laughs> we're talking about the best things ever. Maybe that's not on the list. Yeah, like I, I, you know, that's a vague, a vague memory. But I have to say, um, when Sufjan Stevens did his tour for Carrie and Lowell, mm. so 
Yeah, I remember that show. That was, like, wild. And I remember I was working, um, I was a captain, which is basically, mm-hmm. like, you're you're in charge of one level. You're the head usher in charge. Yes. But you get they to call wear you headset. captain. Yeah, yeah, you get to be called captain, and you get to wear, like, a headset, which makes you look really important. And then all the other ushers are called Tennille. Yes. Right? Yes, that's exactly it. Um, <laughs> ah. And uh, so I was the main floor captain for that show. Mm-hmm. So I was just hanging out at the center aisle, as one does when it's a great show to watch. And uh, right before the intermission, he did the song Fourth of July. Okay. Which has like this refrain um, at the end where he's just like, we're all going to die over and over and over again. And like mm-hmm. on the album, it's already like emotional. But in the show, it was like with all these spots spotlights going around the hall and like mm. the stage lighting was blue and like really dark and it was just like him and the backup singer singing we're all gonna die over and over for what felt like 10 minutes mm-hmm. and when the lights came up everyone was crying <laughs> and we're all like you know the staff are there trying to be like we're not crying we're not crying very professional um that was definitely a highlight uh yeah i i don't i think i worked that show i remember it being very loud there was um, another but that might have been the show. other show i think that was for one of the state albums could have been and also he was there for the age of odds tour also, mm, but which was also great i was gonna say uh there is a positive no there's always a positive you know seeing a seeing a show in a small venue is great yes everybody talks about this arcade fire show at sneaky d's that was so great that helped get their attention going wasn't at that show but yeah. these theater shows and sort of mid-level amphitheater, like smaller amphitheater shows, they actually are cool because they provide, they have such a, a strong um, tech system, sound system, lighting system, audiovisual system, most right. likely, that you can really do a proper show. Right, and I feel like, you know, one of the things that I've really come to understand about shows, and like I've seen my fair share of really amazing club shows, yeah. but... There's also some larger venues that somehow manage to replicate the intimacy of a small venue. Yeah, I mean, I would say a 500 to 2,000 person venue yeah. is you're really capable of seeing an amazing show. Even 3,000, really. Yeah, like you know. I would say anything in that range. But I've even seen great shows in larger venues, obviously. Yeah. Mostly that theater called Scotiabank Theater that used to be... Uh, the Air Canada the, Center. The Air Canada Center, where I've also seen terrible shows, too. Right. In fact, Massey... When we were there, sometimes they give away tickets for other things. I went to like an Aerosmith show. At oh, that that's concert, hilarious! And it was just I couldn't even see anything. But I've seen Nick Cave there now, who is uh, what is, he's got a stance on Israel. Yeah, uh, he sure does. And and uh, then also I saw the Smashing Pumpkins there, and that was amazing. I saw Crosby, Still, Nash, and Young there in high oh, school. Oh yeah, I think my parents went to that show. It was really funny. I begged my parents for tickets, mm-hmm. and I think my dad just assumed I would take him because I was seventeen, <laughs> and I begged my parents for tickets, and then I went with a friend. Oh my god! And my dad was so upset. My parents went to that. They didn't invite me. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was like definitely up in the cheap seats. Yeah. Um, but still, it was phenomenal. And like I saw Radiohead at the uh, venue formerly known as the Sky Dome. Yeah. Um, like, I'm sure that a band like Radiohead would tailor make a show that would be very satisfying in a space like that. Right. Yeah. Like, it was a phenomenal show. I also saw them at the. What do you think of Tom York? He's little. 
He's so small. He's little. He's yeah. ill looking. Yeah, I when I so it was. He a looks like murder. he lives inside Michael Stipe, feeding on him. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Michael Stipe's always anemic looking. So yeah, you know, there's. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. You know, I saw them. Um, <laughs> I don't even remember how long ago this was. Now, um, I was still living in Peterborough. So before 2006. Is that where you're from? Peterborough, I am from, Ontario. No, I'm from Toronto, but I went to Trent. Oh wow! So I'm high from, suicide rate. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I think it has the highest suicide rate as a school in. Uh, Maybe North America. It's something crazy. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I didn't. Well, yeah, you're Encounter fine. anyone who um, had uh, had died by suicide at, in my time at Trent doesn't mean it ever happened. Just no, never anecdotally, not something and, you didn't see. No, not at all. Um, but um, I was at Trent and uh, came home for this show. I think I was still at Trent. Now I'm like questioning my timeline. Anyhow, don't worry it was about it. You can make up whatever. Right? It was at the Sony Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had really good seats because my dad had access to good seats. Mm. Um, and so I was sitting like six or seven rows back. And like, if you've been to the Sony Center, now known as Meridian Hall, there's yeah. like the rows that are the double letters. And then there's like an aisle that goes across and then there, it starts at row A. So we were in row A. Um, so like Tom York was like life size from where we were. Right. Yeah. That's always exciting to be in the front row. I've been to that that space too. That's yeah. another really well sized venue yeah. where there's no real spot that you will won't see like yeah. the show at what feels like a somewhat intimate yeah. uh, way. And if you're in the first. 10 to 15 rows, it's quite a close thing. Yeah, I saw a massive attack there most recently, mm. and it was just, like, mind-blowing. Do you think Massive Attack feels bad that now the thunder has been stolen from their name because there's been so many massive attacks since... <laughs> um, I feel like they've managed to somehow incorporate that into their visuals. It was <laughs> Are very... they Banksy? So I One really think Banksy, so. That's right? the rumor, right? Yeah. Is that Robert Del Naja is Banksy, mm-hmm. and looking at their their general politics and feel, like I'm definitely on that theory. Mm-hmm. Um, they deny it, but there's been a really good track record of Banksy graffiti showing up in towns where they're performing. Oh, so you know, but like, and the and just like the vibe, it, it's got this very like dystopian vibe. The show, like, they had a lot of. Um, sort of video projections of, like, totalitarian states doing, like, really cool choreographed, like, military processions and mm-hmm. stuff. And it was just very much, like, I was living in uh, in Jerusalem when Banksy came and did all of the all of the graffiti in Bethlehem. Which and, I don't know anything about that. Oh, what wow. is that graffiti? Oh, my gosh. So that graffiti um, was... There was a whole bunch of it, but basically he had a pop-up gallery in the church in the Nativity Square, which is where the Uh Church of the Nativity is, um, called Santa's Workshop or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but it was a whole bunch of sort of political art around um, the political situation in in the West Bank. um, Some of which was actually on the on the wall on the depending on who you ask, separation barrier, security perimeter, apartheid wall, whatever you want right. to call it. Yeah. Um, so a bunch of it was on that. Fence. Fence. Parts of it are. Mm-hmm. Um, or there was also, like, some of the things that are pretty famous. I'm trying to even remember 
now that it's like all mixed up in my head, but you had like a bunch of stuff around bulldozers, like protesting house demolitions and things like that. There was a dove wearing a flak jacket that had like a sniper target okay. on it. I think it. I've seen something. Yeah, that it was image. pretty like, I mean, it was very political mm-hmm. and very Banksy. Very, very Banksy. Banksy's very uh, sort of like. You know, it's if you combine uh, Rage Against the Machine with Shepard Fairey with uh, yes. maybe, I'm just trying to think uh, of a third, uh, maybe, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, I don't know, like uh, mm, mm, Bill Clinton. <laughs> I feel like you need like a little bit more dystopia in that. Like, yeah, like, mixed with V for Vendetta. Yeah, say. yeah, like there's... Yeah. A, like, it's very sort of political and, like, Rage Against the Machine-ish, like, Bulls on mm. Parade, you know, all of that. Yeah. Um, but also, like, there's just something about it that is just so dedicated to portraying, like, a dystopian reality. Yeah. Um, and I shouldn't even say portraying a dystopian reality. I think he's trying to say that we live in a dystopian reality, um, which is pretty consistent with that massive attack show. And therefore, right. you know, um, <laughs> like... I can't remember exactly the slogan on the t-shirts that they were selling, but it was basically like, we are in the conspiracy. Like, it was very, you know... um, Right. Very, like, British men of a certain age. Right. And their shirts are all Banksy art, which is also a (laughs) dip And then they did, at the show, they were like, we'd like to shout out our secret weapon, Banksy! Banksy, why don't you come out? And then it's like, just like a person in like a gorilla suit, so you don't see who it is. Yeah, that would be, that would actually work for the vibe that they, uh, that they were going for. Banksy's like the MF Doom of, of, um, clip art. (laughs) I, I don't even know how to react to that, because I'm trying not to like laugh until I snort, because... That's really fun. Oh, we had a good time at Massey Hall. Got along just swimmingly. So well. And uh, I don't think I was admonished at any point. Yeah, you were like, you know, pretty responsible member of the team. I'm even more responsible now. Yeah. Because not that I have a job like that now. I'm killing it. Thank you to my Patreon subscribers for keeping me from needing a second job that I definitely don't have a second job. Nope. No, no, in this society nowadays, you only need half a job to get by. You know, it's kind of bizarre to me because for the majority of my adult life, I have had two jobs. Right. Because, you know, I moved back to Toronto and within the year... From Jerusalem? From Jerusalem, yes. I was in Jerusalem for a year, moved back to Toronto because before Jerusalem, I was living in Hamilton. And Hamilton in 2006 is not Hamilton of... 2020. It was a very different city. No, 2006 is um, the very beginning of um, the the slight vestiges of yeah. stuff in Hamilton. Yeah, it was very slowly starting, but like as an example, I couldn't. There was nowhere for me to go to work on. Like you know, I was a grad student, and you know, as a grad student, I would want to take my laptop to a cafe with the stack of books to write my papers. Um, but literally near where I lived, which was close to downtown Hamilton, after 4 p.m., my only option was Tim Hortons. Um, that's changed. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a crazy thing is that um, having traveled in the U.S. and Canada from, like, the early 2000s on, you know, getting getting around, it was so interesting in the first few years going to Austin, Portland. Mm-hmm. Even seeing it here and there in Toronto, San Francisco, 
um, you know, New York, obviously, and seeing like this weird nascent culture of nascent culture of nascent, nascent. I think it's nascent. Nascent culture of, you know, our my generation owning coffee shops that had vegan options right. and veganism was a whole part of all this new stuff and and you know just. Good coffee, relatively good coffee, you know, Americanos. Yeah. And um, I was so amazed by this. And coming back to Ontario and you'd go to Hamilton, which is not a small city, but no. but there would be nothing except for the classic places, which are Tim Hortons and Harvest, was, which was the original version of uh, this restaurant chain Harvey's. And oh, I think right. the original Tim Hortons is also in Hamilton I as think well. you're right. I think I used to go to it. Yeah, so you would be doing your Wi-Fi in the uh, Tim Hortons, which probably didn't have Wi-Fi. No, there was no Wi-Fi. So long ago. It was so long ago. So basically, I would um, go to my friend's house and we would just do all of our work there. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But when I moved away, um, when I when I moved to Jerusalem for the year, when I came back, I was like, I after living in Jerusalem, which is its own crazy city with its own dynamics, Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't really imagine going back to having to bring my laptop to Tim Hortons. So I moved back to Toronto. Yeah. Um, And within a year, I was working full time and Mm. had and actually before I even got back from Jerusalem, I already had a job at Massey Hall. And so I was, you know, always, and even then I was also working in a coffee shop and I was a TA at the university where I was still a grad student. So even then I had three jobs. And so now since Massey Hall is closed down, I've only really had one job. Mm. I mean, I I write, which I guess is technically a job. For the forward. For the forward. The uh, venerable institution. Apparently Isaac Singer. Yeah, I feel like he would have written for the Yiddish. Yeah, he did something before it changed the name. Yeah, yeah, the the Forverts, the the old venerable Yiddish uh, mm-hmm. paper, which still exists, by the way. Um, my Yiddish is nowhere near good enough to read it. I can sound out the words, but that's not really. All I learned about Yiddish was from Leo Rost in the Joy of Yiddish, the Joy of Yiddish great book. Great book. Yes, and also uh, Jackie Mason noted hateful person very hateful very hateful person wrote a book called how to talk jewish that my uncle bought me oh i feel like you would really get a kick out of um michael wex's book born to fetch oh yeah he's from toronto well he's from winnipeg but he lives in toronto and he um spends a lot of time like unpacking all sorts of funny cultural meanings to yiddish <laughs> phrases and has like sections on like profanities and weird euphemisms for sex stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really it's really fun. Um, highly recommend it. Well, you know, I didn't really uh, know the extent of your academic or uh, literary or whatever you'd call it, commentary, almost punditry, you could yeah, say. Yeah, it's weird uh, that that's a thing that I could be described as. I think it was Twitter mostly because we probably followed each other on Twitter for a very long time now. Yeah, probably. And of course, we would in the summers, we would often wind up hanging out with our mutual friend, Erica. Right. Uh, Bresen. Yeah. Erica and I basically have known each other since the seventh grade, which is wild. It's amazing. Yes. I've noticed with these uh, theater uh, jobs, these usher jobs, it's always like people who are sort of like really deep in the city. Like, people, people were born in the city yeah. or live in, you know, co-ops that are, you know, it, it's always been like that. And it's still like that at the one I don't work at now because I only don't even need to work because I'm such a successful 
human. Right. Just as a human. Right. Yeah, it's it's funny to me, and, like, it's funny that you say live-in co-ops, because that's literally the story of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> Grew up, you know, not mm-hmm. too, too far from where we're sitting right now, over Ram Bay and Bloor, living in a housing co-op there um, for years and years, and then, yeah, like, that's, that's my life story. But, mm-hmm. you know, the thing I always appreciated about Massey Hall is I feel like we were mostly the kids who weren't that cool in high school, <laughs> but then we had, like, one of the coolest jobs in the city, um, and, like, somehow were... Um, and like we were all kind of the weird kids doing our own weird things but like yeah. in the way that isn't cool when you're 16 and is really cool when you're 26 actually a couple of people i worked with at massey uh chris and and dan were both in this band uh yes and i did the cybertronic speed spree and i did like a special appearance in their video we filmed it yesterday so oh, it's nice. a whole co-worker weekend yeah. and then i went to do just this, it's not a job, it's just this thing where I go to a small venue and I help people find their seats and sometimes serve them drinks. But it's volunteer-based and they're really, they're, they see me and they go, wow, you're, this is like being served by Bruce Coburn. Or It's like, it's like this weird, it's, it's like this weird hobby almost. Yeah, um, no, I mean, that's something that I was just thinking about today where, you know, sometimes there's people who are working that job and they're kind of just doing it. You know, because they like it. I actually think it's cool to do a job like that because, you know, serving people and directing people and sort of being polite to people in a way that isn't actually asking for anything in return because it's your job are... Uh, it's like a really, I don't know if you'd call it a skill, but it's like an enriching thing to do. Yeah. And it's a, it has no religious basis in it. Yeah, and for me, I think it was, for me, a good combination of doing that. Um, but also, um, I am often referred to as a person who was maybe a little bit too nice for my own good. Mm. Um, so it had also... Um, the opposite thing for me where oh, it, it gave was you an, stern it gave me an opportunity to practice my stern maybe a little bit like dispassionate like you broke this rule and now i'm going to give you a hard time <laughs> that was something i didn't like about it in a sense was not what you're talking about but just that it was at the artist's or promoter's discretion, basically right. all of the rules you had to enforce so they could be like oh if you see somebody like talking too loud in the bathroom, go in the bathroom and yell. Not not like that, but just, we were shining flashlights on people. And going, yeah, just like, don't talk or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> really like, aggressive flashlight yeah. technique. Um, like really aggressive. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there was, yeah, there was something really weird to that. And some of the rules, like for the most part, they were pretty straightforward. Like don't let people record the concert. Okay, fine. Um, although one time I have to tell you, this was, I think, one of the strangest things that I ever had to stop was um, it was a classic albums live show. So they're like a cover band that plays alb- classic albums. Yeah, and live. they play them live. So you will hear, did you ever want to hear um, Led Zeppelin 1 in its entirety played by other people that's basically perfectly perfectly they are phenomenal they even managed to find singers who sound uh quite a bit like the original like they are really cool to go see but i caught somebody audio bootlegging the queen one and i was like this is very weird thing to be audio bootlegging given that it's not queen and you have this it's the album but what if you go 
you market it as being a live Queen show where they play the album all the way through. I mean, maybe that's what he was going for. <laughs> but I'm like looking at him, and I'm like, this the, is these audio recorders at shows. They, they're they're doing who knows what their their inner lives are. You know, they've got something going on that only they can explain. Do you remember the? Good old days of like file shares where you would download the bootlegs. Of course. Of the of I I think I didn't I have a lot of bootlegs, but I had a lot of uh, I got a lot of stuff off file sharing. Yeah, yeah, I think I have like probably somewhere on a hard drive a considerable number of Radiohead bootlegs mm. um, from the days where I was like borderline obsessed with Radiohead. Greenwood. Yes, Johnny Greenwood. But but I uh, I mostly had bootlegs of uh, comedy shows actually from like the late '90s, early 2000s. So people would be taping Sarah Silverman set or uh, John Benjamin and John Glazer would do things at these Yola Tango Hanukkah shows in New York, and they would do characters like the Forgetta Buddies. Oh my god! Which were these Italian guys, or not Italian? They'd also call it Forget About It, but they had a joke in it where they go the Holocaust. Never forget about it. Oh, that's good. That's and, good. And, uh, you know, so, and then Louis C.K., uh, Zach Galifianakis, and, you know, I remember I had those, and it was like, they weren't always the greatest, but it was it was really cool hearing recordings like that, and I'm not sure if they exist anymore on that level. If you're going to one of those Dave Chappelle shows, you know, they're so... No, they, like, make you, insistent like... Insistent on locking up. Yeah, they make you, know, you, like, put your cell phone into some... Which is, like, a reason I wouldn't love even working at a venue like Massey now. Right. You know, because you gotta make people put phones away and... Yeah, like, it's, like, a whole... Weapons. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. It's, like, a whole thing. Um, yeah, it's so funny, like, just thinking of it. Also, the effect, the effect that, like, the Netflix special has on, on like, the need for comedy bootlegs. Because it's like, I feel like half of the shows that I see lately are people practicing for their Netflix special. Yeah, uh, everything is, everyone's saying the same jokes over again and over again. And everyone's Netflix, I guess everyone's getting ready for a Netflix special or some kind of special. And it's like, you know, gearing your act towards working on TV can sometimes, uh, I don't know, like make it kind of more perfunctory live or something. Yeah, and I, I feel know. like I feel like I gotta go start going to see more comedy because I do oh, come enjoy on out. it. Laugh Sabbath on th- Sabbath on Thursdays on Sunday, three p.m. T- once a month. I do comedy and Al Senior, a great musician. I feel like I don't know how I managed to miss this, given that we're friends on every form of social media. I post it all the time. And you post it. And you probably invite me. Not a lot of people go. But it doesn't need to be a lot of people because it's a small room and we have a great time. So wait, why did you live in Jerusalem? What took you to Jerusalem? Did you was, did you get a deal on a flight? Was um, it free? You got there. You flew there for free, didn't you? I mean, the first time I went, I definitely did. I did mm-hmm. that whole like birthright thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I spent a year of grad school there um, because I went to grad school in Hamilton, and um, mm-hmm. my department was missing. I was in. I was in religious studies, but I was studying religion and politics and specifically Jewish, sort of Jewish political thought. Mm-hmm. And um, my department was missing a significant chunk of Jewish history. Mm-hmm. Um, we had early Judaism and modern Judaism and nothing in the middle. Right. Not nothing during the uh, wandering years. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, even like Talmud content was pretty limited and no modern Hebrew. 
And my supervisor was like, hey, there's really great funding. I think you should do this. And so I applied mostly because I was a little bit scared of my supervisor. (laughs) Um, And I applied thinking that there was no way I would ever get funding to do this. And then, of course, I got funding to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I spent a year there um, studying. And by studying, I mean, I learned Hebrew. I definitely was, like, pretty diligent with that. But because I was already done all my coursework, um, I took one course per semester, audited one course per semester, and then ostensibly worked on my thesis. Oh, so you got to be there for a long time. I was there for a full year. Yeah, July to July. Um, It was an adventure. Traveled a bit, got to got into Jordan. Never made it to Egypt, which was a shame. Um, you went to the Palestinian territories. Went to the Palestinian territories a lot, really regularly. And how's the food? Oh, so good. Oh my gosh. Um, and also in Ramallah, there is this cafe called Stars and Bucks. Uh-huh. Um, and the I don't know if it's still there because we're talking about two thousand seven ish. And, uh, but it was like in the main square of Ramallah Mm -hmm. and you could go and you could like smoke shisha and like, or nargila and, um, eat like these phenomenal ice cream sundaes and just like at Starbucks, just like at Starbucks. And of course, like the, uh, logo for it was basically the Starbucks siren. So it was kind of like dumb Starbucks. It was basically dumb Starbucks. Um, but with. Uh, dessert and nargila, <laughs> and I remember once going with. What's like, nargila? It, is that it's, sardines? It's, um, yes, hundred <laughs> percent. You put it on top of your sundae. It's divine. Um, no, it's the flavored tobacco that you smoke out of the water pipe, oh. also known as shisha. Um, and they had really good, really fresh, really great flavors. Um, and I remember going at, with my friend, and we smoked so much of it that we both were like almost sick from, yeah because you can definitely smoke too much of it it makes you lightheaded and then you want to throw up yeah um and uh so we had to go uh you know we were like what do we do we smoke too much mm-hmm. so we left stars and bucks and went to like a falafel stand mm-hmm. and had like some of the most divine falafel ever it was great uh i i was in new york we were just in uh we were visiting New York, and there was a uh, in Astoria, Queens, which was on the way to a venue I was performing at. Uh, there was a place called King of Falafel and Shawarma, and that's a Palestinian one. Okay. And they have a map of uh, pre-1968 uh, Palestine, so mm-hmm. it's a pa- controversial place. Controversial. Although probably not to anyone who goes there. Mm-hmm. They're probably like, yeah, that's the map. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, on the it just similar to the Starbucks story, the signpost of this restaurant, which used to be a uh, truck, a food truck, now they got a brick and mortar place. It just says hashtag Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I love like these like strange appropriations of like pop culture stuff. It's the best. Um, it it really just makes it. It's just so much more meaningful to go to these places. Yeah. There's a lot of Korean places in my neighborhood, and they all have, not all, but many of them have, like, very literal names or names that I am not quite sure why. Like, there's one called Hot Fridays. And, of course, my favorite was a butcher shop. Now, in Canada, we have a company called Sleep Country Canada. You might know where this is going. I think so. And there was a butcher shop, a Korean butcher shop that was called Meat Country Canada. (laughs) 
love it. I thought that was really good. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, what do you... It, this seems like the last vestige of something that I can't help but enjoy is, like, broken English names of stores. Right. You know, translations that are just, you know, literal, and then it's... That's the name. Yeah, there were some really great translations that were probably Google Translate's gone wrong when mm-hmm. I was in Japan. Um, and I think, like, my favorite, there were mm-hmm. there were many, but the one that sticks out to me always was it was on a mailbox. So I think it probably was saying, like, don't put junk mail here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it said, please do not anything. <laughs> and it was kind of perfect because I love that, kind of stuff. that is 100% a mood that I have been I agree. In. No, that's how I live my uh, life. Please do not anything. Please do not anything. Yeah, I mean, I'm just screens and, you know, yeah. uh, you, you're a gamer. You seem like you might be a civilization type of gamer. Um, You know, I'm not. I... I hate, I hate to admit that <laughs> I play a lot of Candy Crush. Yeah, it doesn't it's, count. Yeah, it doesn't count. And, and you know, the story of how I ended up playing <laughs> no, Candy Crush. No, maybe it counts. I don't know. No, not really. Um, it was I was so resistant to it because I know how addictive people are. I mean, it yeah. even like was a storyline for a full episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. Quasi Cupcakes. Um, my mom was hopelessly addicted to it. And yeah, was, moms get into right? it. Right? And she was stuck on a level. And she had had her, I, I, I was staying with her, I think mm-hmm. it might have been when she had her hip replaced, and she was stuck on a level, and I was like, let me see, and like, the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. Yeah, I've had that with a lot of app games. I think app games are a little bit more oriented towards like, immediately drawing you in, yeah. and kind of giving you nothing for a lot, you know, a lot of, of time. your time, and sometimes a lot of your money. Yeah. Um, whereas... You know, I play Fortnite. I have a great time. Uh, Can you I pay floss? a little bit. Dab. Uh, I, I mean, is that dabs? <laughs> I, what's the difference? I, I mean, no, I, I can't. I do sometimes emotes with it. But I just find, like, the video games uh, on the systems and stuff, like, they're still dumb waste of time, but they're not quite as simplistic most of right, the time. Right, like, they're more you know. story-oriented. Like, uh, those are the ones I like. some, like, investment in it, whereas yeah. I literally, I think I just play it because I can be an anxious fidgeter, and mm-hmm. then if I'm fidgeting by playing Candy Crush, I'm not anxious fidgeting. Yeah, I uh, just the other day bought a Nintendo DS. Ooh. This is, I go back in time and I buy old systems, and you know, that's a portable one, so I'm looking forward to having that on my next... Uh, jail visit when they send me in the bus. It's like a school bus, but it's for prison, you know, those buses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, <laughs> okay. I feel like there's... Do they let you bring the DS? I don't know. That would be cool. Yeah. They should do that. If I were in charge of prisoners' rights, I'd say, first things first, pick your three favorite possessions and bring them on the bus. Yeah, that sounds like a more humane... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Secondly, prison is just a farm. Just a, with a fence, with an apartheid fence. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I'm like consistently fascinated by criminal justice reform, um, and I could go on for like well, weeks th- about this, and I'm not going to. There's quite a few to- uh, choose your own adventure topics we can go down right, right. now. Although there's, I think a lot of them relate. So so you're in Jeru- Jerusalem, yes, embracing. The, the Judaism that is part of you. Yes. And uh, and and then you go to Pal- Palestinian territories. You're like, 
Well, I like them too. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> well, and it's also, you know, um, my friends in my Jerusalem year were all very sort of social justice oriented mm-hmm. people. Um, and we were all pretty like engaged in um, what I now see. Like when I was there, my like life path was to come back and be an academic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then life had other ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I now sort of see that year as really formative in, in terms of me getting into I work in the Jewish community. And and this was really the year that sort of changed that trajectory. And I think it was really like there were so many questions that I had going in. I didn't grow up in the Jewish community, really, and the community that I had been exposed to was really conservative. So um, you were, you were, you grew up within a conservative Jewish community, but that you visited occasionally, basically? Not even. Like, it was like our extended family who we weren't close to were conservative Jews. Yeah, my friend said that. Yeah. And was your family practicing or observant? Holidays. Or, yeah. Like, my dad's not Jewish. Right. We did holidays, um, but even, like... Holidays that my grandparents were like mumble through the Passover Seder that my mom grew up with. Yeah, we have that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were holiday Jews. Yeah. Uh, but then our family's like a bit more. Plus, my mom is, you know, maybe yours is too, is yeah. like a kind of old school Toronto for generation, you know, like, yeah. like Jewish uh, person. So it's always been hard for me to distinguish between culturally and uh as ben shapiro puts them ginos oh yeah 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 not to not to bring him up yeah um yeah he's one of my favorite hate watches i just Mm, watch him and i'm just like where does he come i can't handle his voice oh his voice i can only watch his eyebrow (laughs) but you know last year was a really good year for some of those especially annoying people getting embarrassed in his interview with Andrew Neil, who is not a great guy either, but that BBC interview with Andrew Neil is just so hilarious. And it really shows off Ben Shapiro's, uh, um, child brain. Yeah, you know? you know, what scares me more than Ben Shapiro himself are the mm-hmm. people who think he's an intellectual. But it's just young, and it's also, I think that when you're, uh, you know, younger and of a certain uh, disposition, you wind up seeing people around you, and they drive you nuts, and they're moralizing in your eyes, right? and you kind of have to go sideways. Ironically... If anyone's going to be moralizing, well, it's a orthodox conservative Jewish person like Ben Shapiro, who uh, his values are, you know, not really in line with all the people who you just met. A lot right. of his fans, you know, it's just that they love that he says the word logic, you know, right. and when in fact facts. his entire his entire belief system is based on faith. Right, and he's like, you know. facts don't care about your feelings, yeah. except for everything he says is based on his feelings. Feelings, yeah. It's, it's really fascinating to watch. Um, but back to Jerusalem, um, when I was there, my friends were all um, really sort of social justice uh, mm-hmm. oriented people. What year was this? This was 2006. Seven to eight. So okay. this is just after the Hamas Fatah split in the West Bank. Four years after uh, Arafat died, something like that. Yeah, about that. And it was, you know, like it was still in the shadow of the Second Intifada. There had been almost the civil war in, mm-hmm. in between Hamas and Fatah. Hamas had taken over Gaza by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, at the same time, like, Olmert was in power, and so there was still some hope that there would be more peace talks. Like, it was mm-hmm. kind of a weird time to be there. 
Um, and I spent some time then, um, you know, with these sort of social justice oriented friends with like in the Palestinian territories, meeting Palestinians, talking to them also did what is now um, what I sort of recognize as like leadership training mm. um, for uh, for North American Jews who were going to go back and sort of mm-hmm. have conversations in the community. And one of them actually founded by um, a rabbi from Toronto and somebody else um, who's another rabbi, not mm. from Toronto, um, called Encounter, where you actually go and you get like context um, and, mm. you know, you do tours and whatever and you meet with people who are doing sort of peace work on the Palestinian side as well mm-hmm. and really fascinating stuff and it's it's been a long time since I've been back I moved home in 2008 um but you know that really was kind of formative for me in terms of how I think I I tend to be a very like pragmatic thinker which mm-hmm. is like hey, we have, like, this thing called Israel and this thing called the Occupied Territories, West Bank, Palestinian Territories, whatever name you want to give mm, to it. Palestine. Palestine. Um, and, or Palestine in formation. Um, right. And well, star and Bucks. Stars and star, Bucks. Stars and Bucks zone. The really Stars and good Bucks desserts. mall. Like, <laughs> such good desserts. Um, and, and how are we going to, like solve this without committing any war crimes on either side well it's a bit late for that a little bit late yeah, yeah. that's i think yeah. that's our without committing any more war crimes yeah. on either side and yeah without uh really without interference yeah which will never unfortunately happen no you know because uh, the longer i go looking at this stuff i'm just like it's it's pretty wild because Middle Eastern geopolitics, Middle Eastern infighting oh, between, yeah. say, the Saudis and Iran. It's uh, such a hot mess. The U.S. Uh, retaining, you know, a vested interest. Uh, and then Israel itself. And my, my very simplistic view of it was like, well, I've never been to Israel. Tons of people I know haven't been to Israel. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's but got the, an opinion. But the only people who really know what's going on are the people who are... Who are currently there or spent a long time living there and i i've actually learned that as a lesson when i've gone places across the world like i've spent a bit of time now in uh not a bit i made quick stops in cape town and thailand but right after i was in thailand that's when there was that weird coup thing oh right i forgot about that yeah and then also colombia and um in south africa especially i was like I was like, you know, I don't know anything. Like, I don't... Yeah. Why are we even pretending to know anything when we're on one side of the world? You know, like, there is, there are a billion people in China right now. How could we know what really is going on with, like, the coronavirus, with the governmental suppression? I mean, obviously, things like the Uyghurs and the, the what's right. happening there are... It's really important to know. However, it's really hard to find out when the government of one of the largest countries in the world is actively censoring actively and they always have been and like really successfully no they're really good at china is very good at at, uh you know you don't really know what's going on outside of places like hong kong or or taiwan which sound like they're incredibly moneyed you know so so it's it's anyway not to get into china but but my point is that as someone, so when you were there, did you kind of get that sense, and did it uh, like what would you say that you had? Were any misconceptions you had that were cleared up either 
by, about Israelis or about Palestinians? I think for me, um, my big sort of posture on anything political um, is that if I come away from a situation where I'm like in a learning and quote situation feeling like I know less than I did when I started, Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably a good thing. Right. Um, And I think for me, it was really like, I mean, I was young too. I was like 23, 24. And you know, when you're like in your early twenties, you think you have all the answers to everything. Yeah. Um, And coming away and just being like, hey, we actually have some really complicated things. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if there's any, like, one thing that I can point to other than um, feeling simultaneously, like, hopeless because of how entrenched some really bad stuff is uh, Mm -hmm. there. And, you know, I spent some time, um, you know, learning more about... I I would say, like, the biggest thing that I learned, and and it's really hard to understand from a map until you're actually driving it, Mm -hmm. it, and it's, like, changed a lot even since then, is um, the situation with, like, how the settlement... Israeli settlement blocks break up the future, hopefully, Palestinian state, um, and how like entrenched they are in the land and it's really hard to understand like you can see it on a map Mm -hmm. but when you have to take like a crazy detour on the palestinian road to avoid the settlement it feels very different than like seeing it on a map why are you avoiding the settlement so it depends i mean it depends on what you're on right so um in those cases i would be on so for example a moped with a palestinian person no just mostly palestinian buses so like you can take a series of like the palestinian authority run public transit to get into uh, palestinian territory um and so we'd be going to like a city or whatever and you'd have Mm. to take crazy detours um and you also like see it really clearly even when you're on the israeli buses like going that cut through um which roads get taken by which color license plates because the Palestinian Authority has a particular color license plate and the Israelis have a different color license plate. Is it plate. like the blue? Blue and green. Cool. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's really like, yeah, so I feel like my attitude has been since then that I'm not the holder of the solution um, in any way, shape, or form. No. And so what I've like very much seen my role is finding the organizations that I think um, do really great work there and um, giving them money. Um, yeah, that's great. And I mean, what scares me is that, you know, um, it sounds like Yasser Arafat had some... The, there was some corruption in the A little bit. And it also sounds like... Uh, there's some corruption in the Israeli government. <laughs> just a little bit. And sitting president under, or prime minister under indictment, you know. Just to make it a bit more uh, related to Canada, mm-hmm. um, something that I was hearing, whether it's true or not, I haven't looked into it, and I'd love to talk to a First Nations indigenous person about this, but is that there's currently a movement among younger uh, First Nations people to actually confront um, tribal chiefs because there's corruption also in the within the reserve tribal system. Right. You know, and I think that's um, especially a risk in um, communities that have basically been quote-unquote, that are being... I don't know what word to use. I don't want to say defeated, but like in a sense have been annexed or whatever you want right. to call it, you know, even if it's reserves, even yeah. if it's, uh, even if it's, you know, obviously the occupied, the, the territories and, right. and, and uh, 
it is that the potential to be taken advantage of by those in power is much stronger because you as a people under them have much less and they're holding right. the purse strings. Right. And I think, you know, I could probably go on a whole long rant about capitalism and its role in all of this. I just was talking to someone else <laughs> yeah. right now before you about, she was talking about con- the uh, doing comedy under capitalism. Interesting. Know? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, like we're just seeing the the effect of money giving power is so great. Like I'm just thinking of like Bloomberg and how he's like oh. rising so quickly in the polls when he's not doing any fundraising. He's literally just pouring his own money. But they're doing that all over uh, with uh, this particular primary race with the uh the, uh, the media optics that they're giving is like every week they're saying a new person is surging. Oh, it's ridiculous. Uh, in order to sort of try to get some momentum against the Bernie Sanders thing. It was uh, Buttigieg at first. Oh, yes, Mayor Pete. And then it was, uh, for a second, it was Tom Steyer. Yes. And then Bloomberg now. But that's because Tom Steyer and Bloomberg, who are both, you know, multi, multi, multi millionaire billionaires, uh, I think are just basically buying that space, but right. uh, it's you know, so wild to me. Like, I mean, this is a bad point in uh, the history of the Democratic Party. I, I might be wrong. No, I think that the Democrats are falling apart in the I U.S. The U.S. Democrats. Yeah. But what's ironic is it's a complete mirroring of when Trump was was running. Yeah. In in the primaries with the Republicans, and they keep trying to use that. As some sort of ammo against Bernie, the Bernie Sanders campaign, when it's just sort of a structural repeat, it's not actually right. you know involved in in policy, belief system, or anything. In other words, it's not inherently evil right. <laughs> to, to have a movement like this. It's sort of the honesty of it and what you're saying and all this stuff. But anyway, um, but I think that that yeah, right now um, in the Republican point with Trump there was an inability to actually defeat him. For whatever reason, yeah, nobody stepped up. So fascinating. People were really hating him, but it was in a very petulant manner. He was shutting them down. Um, and you're actually seeing the power of the candidate over the Republican Party, in a sense, if yeah. they get the public on their side. Right. But in with the Democrats now, there is, I think, a legitimate chance that they will find a way to get Bernie... To uh, Sanders to not be the nominee, yeah. And, and um, if that happens, I think that will basically be the end of the party. You know, so you know, and maybe not now, but in the future, because what, it's all the young people, right? And what's so fascinating to me right now, and like I, wa- I'm watching this simultaneously as a Canadian and an American. Mm-hmm. Well, um, are you American I'm as American, well? And I will be voting on, I believe, uh, the Democrats abroad primary Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um. But what's so fascinating to me watching it as both a Canadian and an American Mm -hmm. is how different the systems are between Canada, like our parliamentary system. It makes no sense. It's so, and there's so many problems with our system. But the one thing that I find comforting in a different way is like, First of all, the Americans are always in an election. Like mm-hmm. it's like yeah. they finish one and they're already like campaigning for the next yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. I have voted so many times in the last few years because <laughs> I voted in the midterms also. Good. So I'm like, I feel like I just vote every two years, which is mm-hmm. nuts. Um, but also the fact that you know, 
in Canada, our party leaders are chosen by the party. Um, and then, and like, yes, you can mount campaigns within parties, but you have to sort of, there are party platforms that you sort of go to the party that you agree with. Whereas in the US, it really is just like, if you're left leaning and a politician, you're a Democrat mm-hmm. and left leaning is even generous. Yeah. And if you're right leaning, you're a Republican. And like, those are your only two options as a politician, um, mm. really. Like, you can be an independent, but to be president, you have to sort of join one of those two parties. And the the sort of role of the primaries in selecting the candidate, like, we would not have the Bernie Sanders or the Trump phenomenon in Canada because it's so much more... Or, like, forget the phenomenon of the leaders. So, like... This idea. Oh, do you mean the the like sort of leadership? The phenomenon, leadership races, like the running and the running and the campaigning for leadership, but also no. Like, when we have that, it's all settled pretty quickly. Oh yeah, so fast. I mean, we're, we're they don't being, seem to pick the best person most no, of the time. They just no. pick these sort of I don't even know, or not the best person. It's just like. Canadian politicians, it's like charisma is this carrot they're chasing. Yeah, it's a weird, know? it's a weird thing. But you know, I just keep thinking of like the difference between like the squad in the U.S. Right, and mm. it, they've kind of become the thorns in the Democratic establishment's side. And yet, the centrist, uh, you know, white lady feminism and I'm I really throw around I really throw white ladies under the bus but I'm only talking about a really specific kind who would never listen to this podcast right and um uh is is super trying to embrace them in theory right and you're just like yeah it's like performative wokeness um yeah and but what fascinates me about it is in Canada they would have been booted from the party like yeah like Years ago, you think I mean, so? I mean, look, look what happened in the Liberals. Well, with yeah, the, if, would they have? But they would have been in the New Democratic Party. Yeah, they would have. Who been actually in. wouldn't have had the spine to kick anyone, no. to kick them out. No. Not, not. It takes you know. a lot to kick someone out of. Like, they, did they even kick Sven Robinson out after he like stole diamonds? From <laughs> <store>? <laughs> no, Canadians. I don't know. I can't even. Get, I wish I cared as much about Canadian politics, but right now this. 2020 race in the U.S. just feels like... Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic (laughs) and also definitive of maybe where our politics will go. And, uh... Yeah. I mean, hopefully spur us as a country, as a province, as Ontario, as different provinces, as cities, into some kind of action where you just, like, separate the political ideological terminology from needs. Right. You know, as in, do we need cheaper transit will that make traffic better Mm -hmm. you know we are a country that is very pragmatic so in fact what that means is we probably have a lot of money stowed away that we don't do anything with yeah that's i mean i'm guessing i mean well i think that was sort of part of not the last election but the election where trudeau had like the giant victory Mm -hmm. um was like he ran on a platform of infrastructure spending yeah and he didn't do any of it but that's i'm like "Eh," and then nothing happened with it and then there was another election and you know the fact i feel yes he lost the popular vote but the but the fact that even despite a brown face a brown face and blackface scandal he still won says everything that you about need canada. to know canada says everything you need to know about canada um and you know and- i mean we have the most stubbornly idiotic and uh placid 
base of people. And I mean, I am, I do include myself in that, you know, sometimes it's like you're on the subway and you see someone literally screaming and you're just like, uh, you're Satan and not today, Satan. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You know, I can't help you. But let me tell you, and one thing I have to say about Justin Trudeau, that is like kind of a neither here nor there thing, but Uh his hands are extremely soft. I got to shake his hands once Uh and I was like, I want to know your skincare regimen. Well, my friend Zoe, who's been on this program and actually followed you on Twitter yesterday when I was telling her about you, uh, yelled at Justin Trudeau uh, at a town hall, uh, admonished him. She didn't yell at him. She admonished him for not doing enough uh, about drug deaths. Interesting. So, uh, good for you. So. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, no, I, I, he was at a Holocaust remembrance thing. Not, a, not appropriate. No, to not appropriate to yell. It was even like awkward because I wanted to selfie with him because it's mm, Justin Trudeau. Right. Um, but then it felt really weird to be like, thank you so much for coming to this really meaningful and sad day. Can we have a selfie? So I shook his hand and then took a selfie of myself with him behind me. <laughs> I, I like, like that where you take a picture of. So you because someone famous is like in the background yeah yeah but it move. was like right after he had sh- after we had shook hands mm-hmm. so i feel like was he wearing like, brown oh, face hands um that would have been hilarious hello friends family loved ones strangers fans doctors are you listening to this interview with Tema smith i would imagine you are because this is like the middle of the episode. So thank you for doing that. Uh, I'm just coming in here with a little bit of a a PSA, which is that this podcast is, this podcast is a joy to do. I love doing it. I love looking at the numbers and people are listening and I have, you know, it's been almost, it's really been almost, it's been a year and a half of doing this and people have stayed. And that's amazing to me, and thank you for that, to everyone who has. Um, and I have to say thank you for the people who have um, supported on, on Patreon or Ko-fi. And it's kind of what I'm here to tell you about, is that uh, I, I have, uh, if, if you're interested in, in helping me fund this podcast, basically, and my stand-up and most of the creative pursuits I do, you can go to patreon.com slash nickflanagan. And become a monthly supporter, you can do the same or make a one-time payment at ko-fi.com slash Nick Flanagan. I have plans for a lot of physical merch, but for now, mostly what I'm providing are some bonus clips and episodes without the ads, this being the advertising. And uh, basically, I'm trying to get the word out more about the podcast too, so if you have any means of sort of signal boosting it, making sure you subscribe to it and review it and give it five stars, that's really helpful too. Or just tell a friend to tell a friend that it's me again. I think that's a uh, quote from Nature uh, from a rap song whose name I don't remember. But uh, you should listen to that song. It's a good one. Okay. So please, patreon.com or Kofi, that's ko-fi.com, both slash Nick Flanagan. Check those out. If you have a, a buck or more to spare, I could really, I, I could really do a lot with that. Thanks so much. See ya. 
Um, wait, is, is your father the American? My father is the American. So where is he from? My father is from Staten Island, New York. Oh, cool. Yeah. My friend was just in Staten Island. Shaolin. Yeah, Shaolin. Yeah. Wu-Tang Clan. Represent, represent. You know, the two most famous <laughs> exports, Wu-Tang Clan and yeah. The Godfather. They call me Big A from the shelter. Yeah. That's what ODB said in the song The Stomp, and I think about it all the time. Yeah. That he's also known as Big A because he calls himself Aeson Unique. Right. And uh, from the shelter because he's probably had been in the shelters every once yeah, in a while yeah. in the shelter system. And your dad is an African-American man. My dad is an African-American man. And your mother's a Jewish-Canadian woman. A Jewish-Canadian woman, yeah. That yeah. you hate Drake. Um, so <laughs> let me tell you my, my Drake story here. You know, I wanted so much for him out of my, like... Yeah black jewish toronto heart and then he started like being creepy (laughs) like drake don't text 16 year old girls he's always been a bit creepy it's just that his whininess and his like sort of act like the fact that he's so insecure and lame was always like endearing right and now it's just like well it's one of those things where it's like oh so you can't first of all there is something it's terrible to say, but, like, the rap fan in me is, like, s- thinks it's so funny that he, like, impregnated a woman and had a kid. Like, oh, yeah. didn't want this at all, but then accidentally made this happen. Oh, yeah. It's, and it's, couldn't do anything about it and is clear, you know. I sometimes try to imagine <laughs> the phone call with his mom, who <laughs> um, is very much a Toronto Jew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> B- Bubby. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to be a Bubby? Yeah, right? Um, Who's the mom? She's well, it's this French lady who may or may not have filmed a Yeah, she's porno. done some softcore, but it's not a big deal. And um, honestly, she's really cool. Um, we're naming our child Adonis. <laughs> I feel like the name alone... Mom, don't tell Pusha T, okay? That's yeah. all I ask. Yeah. Mom, you told Pusha T and they made a song about it. Yeah. Um, I am so sure that Drake leaked it to, to Pusha T. Because, <laughs> come on. Let's be real. Also, the brown face. The don't brown. forget that he was in brown oh, face yeah. for there in, in the picture they put up. And even that created a little stir. Yeah. Which, now look. I'm fine with people being sensitive and taking their sensitivities, but I feel like kind of intentional misconstruing happens sometimes in these, uh, in what makes people mad. And also a lot of reserve anger that is like, has nowhere to be directed because you just are feeling it internally about these things. Right. So then you got sort of people going like, Oh, Drake, I got mad when he said the N-word. I got mad. And I think it's weird, too, actually. I get but... <laughs> really weird about it. But, yeah, I, like, I get But, really like, weird. I accept it. Yeah, like, I get... Like, he has every right to say it. I guess. I guess theoretically. I, get, I, get, I think it's weird whenever any Canadian, black or white, says... <laughs> yeah, right? Did you ever see... Did, it was on Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live, the Celebrity Jeopardy episode, mm. where Drake... It was the episode that Drake hosted. Uh-huh. Um, and he plays, like, this Canadian guy on it. Mm-hmm. Like, in my mind, that episode is, like, exactly what Drake should be. Like, he's just so polite and, yeah. like, says sorry constantly. But it also, yeah. like, as a, like, mixed-race black Jewish kid from Toronto, I, like... I. Like, yeah, it visibly, was exciting. Like, I was like cringing though every time he said the n word. It just felt so uncomfortable. <laughs> to me. Um, but I also come from like I, my dad's side of the family are like upper middle class Caribbeans. Yeah, they they, they don't use the n word. 
No. <laughs> Are they Je- Jehovah's Witness? Uh, no. We had one. Um, one of my that's often uncle, common in the, the West Indies. And, um, and they, and, my grandma and grandpa, from what I understand, converted to Catholicism mm-hmm. from probably Anglicanism or some mm-hmm. other uh, Protestantism. And my dad was raised very, very Catholic. Mm. Um, his younger brother was a Jehovah's Witness for a while. Um, but, like, met a woman who was a Jehovah's Witness and, like, became a Jehovah's Witness for her. I don't yeah. know how long it lasted. Um, but, yeah, no, our family is mostly either nothing or Catholic. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I find, yeah, with the... Uh, yeah, that's an interesting thing about Drake is that he actually doesn't come from, like, uh, East Coast uh, African-American background. He comes from a Southern one. Yeah, you know? Southern. Oh, and his dad's so embarrassing. <laughs> oh, my God, his dad... <laughs> dad cracks me up but you know it's you know there's this part of me though that like is fascinated by his mom because like what kind of a rebel was she that that's who she was with she's like this middle class jewish woman i actually think she was like in a lower income situation at some point she definitely was you know Um, like because forrest you actually lived in forest hill didn't you um yeah so which is the jewish Upper, it's kind of like fancy, it's like, yeah. it's sort of like upper middle class to wealthy Jewish neighborhood. Yeah, like it's not where I grew up. It's very old. I grew up downtown, um, but when I moved back to Toronto, my first apartment was in Forest Hill. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly because like the rental buildings in that neighborhood are affordable. I'm not surprised because yeah. there's so many uh, grandparents and stuff, you know, yeah. who, who and they're old buildings. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a, a real estate secret. It is. Is if you want to rent, like, oh, yeah. go to a richer neighborhood than you might think because right. property taxes are high, but rentals might not be as high. Yeah, and they're clean and, like, decent. I remember when mm-hmm. I moved back to Toronto seeing a lot of real iffy places. And this is back in the day <laughs> when the average one bedroom was 1200 a month, mm-hmm. not like 2400 or whatever it is now it's expensive um so but even then you know it was like the, there were a lot of really iffy rentals a lot of basements with mm-hmm. really low ceilings and you know i had a pretty respectable place in forest hill it's wonderful. Um, i'm still i guess i'm still forest hill adjacent um, yeah yeah i mean it's fine um it's not where i ever imagined i would live but i actually kind of like um the feeling of like being out in the culture that i enjoy and then mm. like going somewhere calm and quiet which is my like little home base which right. i think is just the sign that i'm getting old yeah i think it's just we get older we don't we don't need to be in the thick of it but yeah so i mean with with those two kind of uh you seem to write in the forward not explicitly about being biracial necessarily but about uh, sometimes of course yeah i've written but one about subjects that are yeah. you know important to you whether you know it's just something that unfortunately or fortunately you uh get to think about a lot. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's pretty funny. Um, if I think about myself, like, 10 years ago, if somebody had ever said to me, like, oh, like, people will get to know you in the Jewish world because you're going to start writing about race and Judaism, mm-hmm. I would have been like, I'm going to what? Um, but that's really been a thing that um, when I started working in the community, it really... I, I felt really different a lot mm-hmm. and and not visibly so because I'm pretty like white and I got curly brown hair mm-hmm. um, and glasses and even though I look exactly like the Smith side of my family, mm-hmm. everyone just is like, oh, but you look so Jewish and I'm like, right. okay, like fine, but also 
not. Yeah. Um, and also, you look Jewish. I could I could go on about how that's a problematic thing. But, yeah, Flanagan. You know. I get the same thing. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. 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 So um, it's been like a whole thing, and I think. So when I started working in the community, I really started working on like, hey, how do I find people who look more or like who come whose families look more like mine? And it became sort of a passion project. And then somehow I ended up, I guess I got on Twitter and started sort of tweeting about stuff. And I had written a couple things that a friend of mine had asked me to write for a blog called Jewish and um, mm-hmm. that were more sort of professional um, oriented. That was sort of like, you know, three things that synagogue should do better, according mm-hmm. to this mixed race Jewish professional. Right. Um, how I Fun reacted, other ways to draw the star. Right. Yeah. <laughs> how I reacted to Rachel Dolezal as a mixed race Jewish woman who passes for white. Right. Um, like that sort of stuff. And then um, one day got like a direct message from Batya Anger Sargon from the forward being like, mm-hmm. hey, do you want to write for me? And I was like, okay. That's really cool. It's and a venerable establishment. It's a venerable establishment. I, I you know, it, these are the moments where I'm like sad that my grandparents aren't still here because right. I can imagine my grandfather like, you know, bringing a printout of my article <laughs> to like Bagel World. Yeah, then, my dad used to always do that. If yeah. I had articles in like the local Free Weekly, he'd be like, "I really liked your new piece." Right? You know? It's so funny. It's, it's very sweet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so um, with that in mind, it's like. You do you feel? Uh, I mean, it, it's just funny. It's there. So many things are happening at the same time in terms of stereotyping, discrimination. Uh, the article that you most res- wrote most recently is about. Uh, it's kind of about global anti-Semitism, but it's or or the rise of anti-Semitism, but it's also focused on people's perception of uh, black and, and yeah. anti-Semitism in the black community, and. Uh, when I was describing, retelling your article, I realized that, you know, the bulk of that relationship is actually based in like New York. Yeah. You know, it's really based on Crown Heights and, and, you know, the, the tenement situations and proximity of culture and, and building ownership. Right. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, it's no accident that. New York is is the sort of arena for so much because New York is the arena for so much perception of North American Jews period mm-hmm. yeah. and so I think you know there's this really interesting dynamic where I think both in terms of um, you know black community leaders who are who are seeking to sort of uh, under uh, like undercut anti-semitism in their community but also Jewish communal leaders who I think, we always have to be looking at ourselves and how we play into, and I'm like, I, I will say this up front, like, I'm not blaming the Jewish community for violent acts committed against it. Um, slaps. Yeah, slaps. Hasidic slaps. Yeah, it's not, it's not good. It's really, it's really mm. very bad, and it's uh, scary times. Um, and, you know, I, I always say, like, I never imagined that I would spend the seven years of my life working in a synagogue looking over my shoulder as I walked into and out of work, because, mm. like, it is a little bit dangerous, or at least there's always the risk. Um, mm. And that's a scary thing that no community deserves. I think, mm. you know, you see it with Muslim community. In, you see it in the black community with, uh, with like, white supremacist violence. Again, I mean, all yeah. minority communities are dealing with it. I'm hearing about right. it now with people saying really horrible things to Chinese people with the right. fear yeah. of the coronavirus. coronavirus. But you know what that means? Discount massages. Yeah. So yeah, now's the time. Now's the time. Chinese people who run a massage thing, 
I urge you to lower your prices due to lack yeah. of demand. Get some really good uh, traditional Chinese medicine. I'm not going to stop patronizing Chinese businesses. Yeah, you got no, it. You I, got me here. I love it. I'm, I've, All I've about seen it. some people doing like solidarity trips to Chinatown to be like, we are not scared and we are here for Just, you. No, and don't, like eating all of the pastries. And, don't like, do it if it's something you don't normally do. Yeah, you're, was, you're a poser. But yeah. if you're like me and you go to these bakeries and you see the conditional pass and you still go in. Oh yeah, that <laughs> conditional pass, let me tell you. I, I, yeah, I would never go to most restaurants with a conditional pass, but Chinese restaurants sometimes you're like yeah like mm. didn't mother's dumplings get like shut down for rats and now it's back open and yeah. normally once I see a rat in a place it's over but mother's dumplings <laughs> I will no can't get and like I do understand that once they get a pass that means they've dealt with the rat problem but mm. still I mean I saw a rat once in a venerable uh Jewish restaurant I mean let's and... face it all of these places are filled with vermin they're food repositories oh yeah all you have to do is keep have more food than vermin yeah and you're winning yeah yeah pretty much <laughs> but but yeah so so yeah the well the jewish uh community sometimes gets pretty uh combative sometimes about their place also it's a very uncomfortable situation because the hasidic community specifically is like you know super into like uh, it's like a when a like a uh, you know like circling around like a, uh, they, it's a pretty, they just want to settle like that's yeah. it's ironic like they want to come closed community yeah. in many ways and and I think it's it's um equal parts misunderstood and also um very and like Chabad is its own subset of that um so what's Chabad so Chabad is um a particular sect of Hasidic Judaism that's really like dedicated to going out and encouraging Jews to do more Jewish things Mm -hmm. so they have a really active outreach thing but there's a huge like Chabad headquarters is in Crown Heights yeah and like the sort of black hat wearing Chabad people like often live there and often are the people who are the victims um of these like slap attacks because they're visible they're very visible and, you know, the, and so there's like this weird thing happening where and what I've tried to sort of write about and bring attention to is like, yeah, we need to find a fix to this because nobody needs to be getting slapped or fear that they're going to get slapped. And like mm-hmm. some of the attacks have been like scary, violent, like with a brick um, to yeah. the face or, you know, shooting in Jersey City or mm-hmm. the stabbing um, in New Jersey. Um, also, um I think it was New Jersey. It might have been mm. New York. Oh, gosh, I need more sleep. But mm. anyhow, but so, yeah, we need to figure out how to, like, put a pin in that right now. Mm-hmm. And that is important for people's physical safety. Um, but also, we're not going to solve anti-Semitism in the black community until we're willing to understand it um, mm-hmm. and to work to uproot its, uh, uproot um, the circumstances that allow it to flourish. And I have a friend who... Um, has written, um, I think she mentioned in her latest piece, Carly Pildes, who writes for Tablet, um, had said something like, you know, there's there's a very common statement about anti-Semitism that it's a conspiracy theory. Well, there's certain things that cause conspiracy theories to flourish. Right. Like economic insecurity, like oppression, um, like, you know, um, basically all of the things that make up systemic racism, um, it makes it very easy uh, for conspiracy theories to flourish. So, yeah. like, you gotta you gotta put a pin in the stuff that makes the conspiracy theory flourish. I like this because 
you're talking about these things being balloons and you're putting the pin in it yeah. and it's bursting. But also on the phone, you put the pin in it and everyone knows the location, which mm-hmm. I guess could also be applied. Yeah. You know, the location of the racism and stuff. Yeah, but, drop a pin. But, uh, like, the 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 thing with... with uh, I have no idea what anti-Semitism in, say, uh, like Houston's black community would be, if any, right. you know... But in, in, in the uh, Crown Heights things, I, I, I saw that one of the... I, I was going to a lot of rap murals, like dead rapper right. tribute murals when I was in New York. And I was looking up this guy, Sean Price, who was from Brownsville. Crown Heights. Uh, is that, that the same? Sydney, right by they're each right, other? Yeah, they're... And, and uh, there was a mural in Crown Heights that was dedicated to him. And it was on the side of a building. And... The building was going to be occupied by a high-end kosher restaurant called Meat. And, All right. <laughs> and uh, by someone who had several restaurants of this style. So now there's like Hasidic Orthodox, or there's Orthodox like hip, hip stuff. Right. You know, but, but people, and then they heard that it was going, they were going to remove the mural. Oh boy. So that brought up, you know, a lot of uh, turmoil. Right. You know. Uh, and, uh, it was then discovered that the person who owned the building, like another person who owned that, another person owned that mural property and had actually been told to have it removed by a property developer who had said it would be better for the value. So it wasn't actually the kosher restaurant, right? you know, so, so people, but so having convenient sort of. Narratives, yeah. you know, is uh, is a problem with all of this, and that's also a very left right thing. You see it all the time uh, with people trying to take down Sanders. When I, there was someone who said this ridiculous thing the other day, where they said, "Well, he competed against Hillary, and he did very well in uh, Kentucky or something." Now we know a lot of people there uh, aren't really into like black people or kind of racist, so. Like, she was kind of the black person right. in the race for this. And it's like, you don't know what's happening in the South to cause the these results. You right. might say they're all racist, but there's a lot of people in the North and, you know, who are actually in charge of system, the, the systematicness that isn't just, right. you know, uh, tribalism, which right. is a lot of Southern stuff has to do with, like, the whites don't hang out with the blacks, and it has to. It's always been like that, and it always will be like that. Right. In in New York, it's more like search them if they're black. You know, like right. be harder on them as police if if they're black. Right. You it's know? very systemic. It's very tied to narratives of like poverty and crime, and yeah. who who's more prone to poverty and poverty and crime. And the thing that I find um, scary and saddening is like look we've always had a propensity to like judge things in black black and white terms i mean that both racially and Mm -hmm. in terms of like binaries but i feel like it's getting worse like people are spending and you know i i haven't given a whole lot of thought to how social media exacerbates this but i think (laughs) you know um some of that is very obvious basically like it's the water and we're the little tiny plastic dinosaur that expands yeah and you know it's so fascinating to me um because i spend a lot of time on twitter Mm -hmm. watching like these threads written by people who have sort of and and i'm not sort of saying i don't mean this to sound like elitist it probably will but like people who have sort of a an interest in something um writing 
threads on things as though they were experts. And, and also wrong. unbiased. And Yeah, and also unbiased. And they are incorrect. Yeah. Like, with factual inaccuracies. Um, and people... Then it gets retweeted, like, 20,000 times. And it enters the vernacular of understanding of a certain topic. And it's, like, constant. And so very much, like, what I've tried to do on social media with great difficulty is... Um, engage in nuanced ways, correct when I can, but I, I've often found that, like, when I've engaged in conversations with somebody who's written a factually incorrect thread, it turns into some other, like, weird dynamic of, um, I don't know, just not being nice to people. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, uh, it's, it's all very, uh, people just are, on their own tip and when you're having a discussion as two people online yeah you're probably not going to get anywhere and then on top of that you're probably not going to get anywhere with a face-to-face thing right it's really just a question of will someone get enough examples or learn enough things to change their mind and also who knows quite what's right you know like nobody really does you know but there are Things like anti-Semitism or war crime that ideally most people don't really think is uh, hot stuff. We're lacking, as a society, humility. Yeah, that's why we all got to work ushering. Yeah, yeah. You see what I did there? Uh, Yeah, it brought it right back around. It It, it really puts you in your place when Uh, somebody (laughs) says to you, you can't tell me what to do. Do you know how much money I give to this place? (laughs) Um, It's... you know what, I, I think back to that time really fondly. But actually, I think since I've become, um, I do a lot of training in my in my day job, and I, I am working in professional development. Mm-hmm. And part of what, one of the like big theories about how adults learn mm-hmm. is that adults need to be in control of the knowledge that they, like, be in control of knowledge, mm-hmm. meaning like, help form their own thinking, um, but also be treated as people who know what they're doing. Right. Um, And so that, as somebody like going to teach, is actually extremely humbling, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're not coming in, like, yes, you might be coming in as the expert, but you're not coming in as the person who's there to lecture people on what's right and wrong. Right, right. You're there to coach them along a knowledge journey. Um, And actually, I think the best trainings are times when I've learned something from the people I'm training. Mm -hmm. And so I really try to approach, like, Twitter in that way. And once in a blue moon, yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting thing. But once in a blue moon, I've actually had really good conversations with people. No, I I know it can happen. I've seen it. The person I uh, spoke to also today for a podcast, Luisa Diaz, uh, has a very nuanced style on Twitter as well. And, you know, I noticed that about yourself. Uh, And like you said, there's a humility. So it's not written out of some kind of dismissive rage most of the time, which is how a lot of Twitter Twitter. reads. Like, if not dismissive rage, like snide dismissive. Dismissive is generally... Dismissive. Like, like what because one person is saying something that's 140 words of, here's my example. So it might not stick, you know? So it's really easy to dismiss. And... It's and the thing that I find really fascinating is also like what the the worst in people that Twitter brings out. Like I've been told that I am um, that I am a bully on Twitter, which is the funniest thing ever. Um, because I I mean look I'm willing to admit 
faults, and I've definitely made snide comments of people I disagree with on Twitter, mm. but I am definitely not a bully. Um, and uh, not, and you know, how it's come up in the past is like somebody's appeared in my mentions to say something mean about me, and then I retweet them with a comment being like, you're wrong about this thing that I said. And mm -hmm. then it's not my fault if my followers jump in and say, like, yeah, actually, you're wrong. But, you know, more than once, people have uh, taken that as me um, somehow unleashing my followers on an innocent person. So which... what do you think of Lizzo outing that Postmates person when they didn't get her, she didn't get her Postmates fast enough. Oh, man. I don't think I saw that. <laughs> that sucks. Um, she apologized for it. Did she? I mean, this is the problem, too, is it's like we have this culture of, like, instant gratification, um, and, like, it's so easy just to fire off a tweet um, without thinking through consequences. Mm -hmm. And so I try, I try extremely hard to think through consequences before I tweet, um, and, you know, um, any of the particularly salacious things that I might think, I try to, you know, at least um, make them something that is likely to at least cause someone to think. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the way that I look at it... Or you can put it on 4chan. Yeah, I could put it on 4chan. Completely anonymous. Yeah, yeah. So 4chan. Oh, 4chan. 8chan. Oh, yeah. They are... That is a whole weird world that I'm glad I don't have anything to do with. Now that we've... I think 4chan is a great way to end things. Do you want to advertise anything? Do I want to advertise Or let anything? people know about something that you've got going on. You have your newsletter. Yeah, so I, I theoretically send out a newsletter every so often. It's been a while. Mm -hmm. um, and, but also, um, now that I'm a contributing columnist at The Forward, mm -hmm. I write things about once a month. Um, that's super cool. Is that the forward dot the forward dot com? The forward dot com. But you great, can, they got it. Yeah, it's a hard website, a Very, domain name to, to nail, and yeah, they got it. Yeah, um, you can follow Jewish me on conspiracy. Twitter. Jewish conspiracy. Yeah, we do control the internet. <laughs> um, you can follow me on Twitter. My website generally has whatever I've written recently. Go to D. Yeah. <laughs> dot com. That's hilarious, and somebody should do that. Um, but yeah, tamasmith.com. You can find me there. Um, I don't know. I speak sometimes in places, and I'm generally a gal about town. She's gal about town. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for coming. Tamara. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. Mugging you. We're giving each other a hug. It's great. Bye. Bye. <laughs> hey, everybody. Well, that was my talk with Tema Smith. Isn't she great? I think she's great. I'm sure you think she's great now. And that also means the episode's over. There's no more of it. We're done. On to the next show. But if you want to find out more about Tema, go to temasmith.com or look her up. She's on Twitter. I'm pretty sure it's at Tema Smith, but I, I don't have her twitter in front of me because honestly i thought i'd recorded this outro already but it, it turns out i hadn't so i'm just recording it late at night on a cold night and i'm kind of bewildered so tema smith everyone thank you for listening to me talk about the things i like to talk about bye oh, man. nick oh, God. flanagan Weekly. Oh, man. Nick Flanagan Weekly.